1: Do I know which state contributed the most men per capita to the Union cause during the Civil War? Uh, yep, sure do. From Saco to Calais, from Bangor to Sagadahawk County, 73,000 men from the Pine Tree State served under the Stars and Stripes, and 18,000 became casualties. We'll hear their story from Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg how Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen
3: to the Voice America talk radio network wherever you go.
0: O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's May of 2018. It's a balmy spring evening here. The students have gone for the semester. Summer term has just begun, but not too many on campus for that. So very quiet. But although I am here on campus, I'm not speaking for the campus or for the UNC system or UCU or anybody else, just myself as always. And my guest I know will do the same as we always do. Well, let me start out by uh Sending a special message of love to the number one fan of Civil War talk radio, my mother back in Michigan, who is in the hospital tonight, but hopefully going home very soon. She was not feeling right a few days ago. Not a surprise, as she is 96 years old and has earned the right to feel whatever way she wants, Uh, but fortunately, uh, doctors have found nothing specifically wrong. She eats carefully and rides her exercise bike every day. Uh, Greetings also to my brother Pete, who is taking care of Mom back home. And Mom, I wanted to let you know I rode the exercise bike this morning and I've been watching my diet as well. Uh, And and of course, thinking of you tonight, and I'm sure the whole Civil War talk radio community uh, is also sending uh, best wishes to you. Well, here in North Carolina, plenty of milestones this past week at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. Uh, Daughter number one, first in age, earned her post-baccalaureate pre-professional health certificate. It's a post-undergrad program for students who didn't take enough science classes but decide they want to go to med school, which is what she's doing. Uh, So she's right now busy studying for the MCAT in a few weeks. She graduated with a very high GPA in her program and is is looking forward to that application process. And daughter number two, the younger one, graduated this past weekend from UNC Chapel Hill with a double major in history and media journalism, media hyphen journalism, the Former School of Journalism at UNC is now the MJ School. Uh, journalism is no longer just writing for newspapers. Now they are doing all kinds of things with social media, public relations, crisis communications, advertising, all kinds of fields, all related to uh, to journalism generally. And I know that uh, she is looking forward to an interesting job in the future. She has been interviewing and applying and uh, is on the brink of all kinds of exciting experiences, as are our both daughters. I could not be more proud and send congratulations to both of them. Back here in Greenville, uh, the East Carolina University baseball team continues to forge ahead. They Won a game last night, two out of three last weekend, still in the national top ten. In the last 14 years of Civil War talk radio, I don't think I've ever spoken about ECU's baseball team uh, before this season, but being a shameless bandwagoner, front runner, now that the team is doing really well, I'm happy to get on board and cheer for them and attend their games and see how they do when they get into the NCAA tournament in a few weeks. I'll keep you posted on that. In the immediate future, uh, next week, no show here at Civil War Talk Radio, no live show, because it's time for the annual This Hallowed Ground trip. I'm excited by it. I've seen the guest list. I've seen the itinerary. Uh, We do the same itinerary every year, but each year I try to add something new or different or change something up. Uh, both to keep myself uh, fresh and, and excited about it and provide something new for the visitors. Uh, so I'll keep you posted on, on what we do different or the same when we get back, let you know how it worked. The weather prediction is for rain every single day next week, but that was true last week and the we, last year and the year before uh, in the middle of May in the spring. That seems to be the usual prediction. doesn't always come true, so it should it'll be better than that when we return uh, the next live show will be may 30th kate major will be the guest here she's the editor of john e washington's book they knew lincoln and we'll talk to her about that and her other civil war writing you can always find out who's going to be on next or who was on last by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org the civil war companion website. You can find the button there, the PayPal donate to the show button. You can send cash this way, which I will use for buying books for the show, which I've actually done some of that in the last uh, month or so, or buying uh, gas for the car, or buying something to uh, to entertain when not reading Civil War books. Who knows what? Uh, it's not a tax-deductible donation, just a contribution to uh, give something back to the show and and is always welcome, as are your emails suggesting who you'd like to hear. Today I caught up with the backlog of of thank yous to people who've donated over uh, the past semester. I try to do those as they come in, but sometimes they get at the bottom of the email queue and now the classes are done, I can go back and answer all of them. So I apologize if you waited two months, three months to hear from me. But, but there we are. Well, tonight we talk about the Civil War effort made by soldiers from the state of Maine. Uh, the author is Tom Huntington, and the book is called Maine Roads to Gettysburg. How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. I think I said introducing this a few weeks ago, something about the need for another Gettysburg book. It turns out this is not actually a Gettysburg book, and I'll ask the author uh, why, it, why it looks like one, but it's actually something uh, even more intriguing. Well, let's find out. Let's talk to our guest tonight, uh, Tom Huntington. Tom, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show.
3: Well, it's a Welcome ple- back to the show. pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time. I think it's been a good five years since I was I was there the first time, so it's great to be back.
1: Yes, I enjoyed uh, your first book on George Gordon Mead. Listeners can go back and listen to that interview uh, any time, but I thought that was a, a really interesting approach uh, to studying a historical topic. Uh, this book... Uh, is focused on soldiers from maine and uh, so starting question is uh tell us about your connection to the state of maine or to this topic
3: what brought you to well, it well you know i was born and bred in the state of maine i i grew up in in our state capital augusta uh, even though now i live in in pennsylvania and i have i was just thinking I it, i think i've now lived in pennsylvania longer than i lived in maine and I lived in Maine for, you know, at least the first 18 years of my life, so it's it's kind of a disconcerting thing to realize. Uh, but um, and, you know, I was born and bred, so I will always be a maniac, and 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 I use that in the best sense of the word. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how
1: that happens. I think I've lived longer in North Carolina than in any other state except Michigan, where I was born. And uh, it, suddenly you you think I'm not a tourist
3: here anymore. I've been here a while. Um, yeah, yeah. But but you can't get it out of your blood, you know, where you were, you were born and raised. So, you know, Mead was a Pennsylvanian and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should write about people from my home state uh for a change and, you know, the the obvious entry point is Joshua Chamberlain because so many people know his story and are fascinated by his story. But um I was thinking when I Thought about this book is, it, I could actually call it, it's more beyond Joshua Chamberlain because there is much more to the story of Maine soldiers at Gettysburg and in the Civil War than just Chamberlain, the 20th Maine, and Little Round Top. Not that I want to disparage Chamberlain because um, that was a very brave fight he and his men did on Little Round Top in July 2nd. Um, but as I looked into it, I realized there were just a lot of great stories about Maine soldiers at Gettysburg. And also the stories of how they got to Gettysburg, uh, because the war had been going on for two years before that battle, and they just didn't, uh, you know, show up at Gettysburg and, and fight that one fight. They they had been fighting, you know, for two years up until that point.
1: Well, th- and that's what the book certainly tells us. As, as I said in the introduction, uh, it's not really a book. Ah, uh, just about Gettysburg. We don't get to Gettysburg till page 200 or so.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Th- the 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 first large chunk of the book follows the uh, path of various individuals and units raised in Maine uh, through the Eastern Theater for the two years leading up to Gettysburg, and then we get to the battle itself. So, right, did right. the publishers suggest you have Gettysburg in the title, or, or was that always there from the start? I mean, I'm you know, the original
3: title, when I, when I first started it, was called The Guns of Maine, and that's a, it's, a, it's a line from a, a famous uh, speech that Joshua Chamberlain made. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as I, I got into it, and I realized, you know, I really need to start at the beginning with this story, and I really need to tell how they got to Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it just struck me that Maine Roads to Gettysburg was, was a much more um, honest title and, and kind of described the book a lot better. Uh, so, so we we decided we would change it to that. In well, fact, it, one of the one it, of the main figures in the book doesn't even reach Gettysburg. Uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but um, Hiram Berry, who commanded a division of the Third Corps at Chancellorsville, was killed by a sharpshooter at Chancellorsville. So he, of course, never never was able to fight at Gettysburg. And I found him to be a fascinating figure. I. I I call him my Janet Lee character in the book. If you remember you know, Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho, he cast <laughs> Janet Lee, who was a big star in that movie and everyone expected she would survive until the end credits, but as we all know, she took a shower shortly after the movie began and was killed off. And with with Barry I found him to be such an interesting and admirable figure. I I, I wanted someone that that people would would come to like and respect uh, and then when he's cut down in his prime, uh, it, it, you would get an almost, I hope, visceral reaction to his loss, as, as his soldiers did. So, as I say, he was one of the main figures in the beginning of the book, but he does not uh, he does not survive, unfortunately, to, to fight at Gettysburg.
1: Well, there are a lot of interesting individuals that you write about here, and, and Barry is certainly one of them. I think we're safe on the, uh, the spoiler alert category because <laughs> i'm going to guess that the the bulk of the listeners will know that there was no division commander named barry on the union side at gettysburg um yeah. depending how how much they're into that that battle so, so i or they probably may probably mention
3: that the union won the battle of gettysburg without without giving anything
1: away i, I don't think that will cut the dramatic tension uh okay, appreciably okay. i think i think people are pretty well up on that uh but the uh, but there are other figures uh, you write about. Certainly Chamberlain is one, uh, but also people like uh, Adalbert Ames, mm-hmm. who uh, most Civil War readers have heard that name somewhere. Uh, Oliver Howard, uh, Oliver Otis Howard, almost certainly uh, most Civil War readers know something about who he was. But we learn uh, quite a bit more
3: about these these figures in this book. Um, yeah, and it my my my, my goal and my. Thing that interests me is the story of people uh, mm-hmm. in the Civil War, and you know how they function, how they thought, what they were like, um, you know their conflicts with other people. I just love the story of human interactions and, and human personalities, and you know in the crucible of war, um, you really see um, people's personality traits heightened, you know, in the crisis. Um, so. I I just find it fascinating to see what they were like as people and not just historical figures you see, you know, on horseback on their statues at Gettysburg. Um, Ames is a fascinating, fascinating person. Um, He was from Rockland, Maine. Um, He went to West Point. He started out as an artillery man and actually was badly wounded at first bull run uh, and ended up receiving the Medal of Honor for his actions there. But he was also a very ambitious young man. And he realized he probably didn't have much chance of promotion in the artillery. It was very slow uh, advancing in the artillery. So uh, he started seeking a position in the infantry and was assigned to be the, the first commander of the 20th Maine. So he was the man that taught Joshua Chamberlain the art of war. Uh, so, so these be, things
1: all tie together in some ways as these characters interact with each other, like the games in Chamberlain at the 20th Main. We're going to take a short are. break. We'll come right back. We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets
4: those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the
0: time. The number one internet
2: talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life.
0: All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the River Oceanus that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg, how Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. We've been talking about uh, some specific soldiers from Maine, uh, people that most listeners will have heard of, like Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver O. Howard, Uh, and and, Tom, you were talking about Albert Ames, uh, the young officer who won the Medal of Honor at First Bull Run in the artillery, but you said he transferred into the infantry in, in search of promotion. How did that work out for him?
3: Yeah, it worked out pretty well for him, I would say. Uh, he did become colonel of the 20th Maine. Uh, it was a newly formed regiment. Um, he apparently was not very pleased with his new command once he uh, saw how green and inexperienced its soldiers were. Um, and he earned a reputation as an incredibly strict disciplinarian. Um, and, and a lot of the men you know, hated him as a result until after they had their first experience as a battle, and then they realized how important uh, all that drilling and training had been for them. And one of the men who learned under Ames was Joshua Chamberlain, who was his lieutenant colonel. And of course, Chamberlain was a Bowdoin professor with no military experience. And uh, and Ames pretty much taught him, you know, everything he knew about soldiering. They would, um, you know, sit in Ames's tent at night and go over um, manuals and, and study tactics. Um, and um, Ames, you know, was was the man responsible for uh, turning the 20th Maine into a a good fighting regiment, and um, the Chamberlain did not even take command of it until, you know, June of 1863, just before Gettysburg, and he had never commanded the 20th Maine in battle until they were on the slopes of Little Round Top on July 2nd, 1863. So it's quite an incredible story. It, it
1: really is. You mentioned uh, Chamberlain had taught before the war at Bowdoin College, which is in Brunswick, Maine, and uh, uh, longtime listeners to the show may be surprised to learn that I have a degree from Harvard University uh, because I only mention it as often as possible. <laughs> but uh, but here I want to mention that uh, my daughter Caroline has her undergraduate degree from Bowdoin College. Oh, okay. And yes, uh, uh, we – I went to we, Bowdoin College.
3: Well, there we go. So, so, yeah. I went, for, uh, I went to Boston for two years, and I literally lived across the street from Chamberlain's house, which at the time was student housing. It was, it was, had been broken up into apartments. Um, I don't even know if I was aware that that was Chamberlain's house at the time. Uh, it's now a, a wonderful museum, but, um, it is.
1: It, it, and, uh, th- there is a dorm named for Chamberlain, or Chambo is what the students call it, mm-hmm. uh, for short. But, uh, yes, they, uh, uh, he is certainly a presence on campus uh, but uh, I, we could actually spend the rest of the hour talking about uh maine uh, my wife's family has a summer place near uh near brunswick and in, in Pittsburgh, maine mm. uh, just you know go take the the back road past the uh what used to be the the air naval air station
3: right and, right uh, and fat, yeah. fat
1: boy driving uh and uh, and you're there, uh, so so a lot it, it, of it, connections.
3: Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful state, um, and it, it is one of the great joys of doing the research for this book was a I got to go up to Maine a lot. I spent a lot yes. of time in the uh, the state archives in Augusta, you know, where I in my hometown, mm-hmm. and they have I mean just an amazing resource, the Civil War regimental correspondence, um, huge files for every regiment, every unit from Maine, just stuff full of of correspondence and a lot of it is fairly routine you know administrative stuff but Mm -hmm. occasionally you stumble across um just a a little story in a a letter or a series of letters and um and and just find some amazing material so so that i loved being able to do that
1: now the howard papers are are at bowden and uh another place while we're talking about research you mentioned the the fifth maine regimental museum on peaks
3: island yes uh, yeah you had to visit that tell us about that i did visit that and we went out we took, you have to take the ferry out from portland and my wife and i went out and it was just a you know a typical fog bound maine coast day you could you know barely see a hand in front of your face and it's like a, a maybe a 15 minute trip out to the island and you know, out there's a a beautiful museum out there. It was the, mm-hmm. the the summer home that the veterans of the Fifth Maine had established after the war, and it was the place where they could go with their families. Um, and now it, it's full of, of of artifacts and and flags, or stained glass windows with the names of men who served in the regiment. Um, there's I, I was astonished to see the uh, the kepi worn by uh... george Becknell, who wrote the regimental history mm-hmm. and he had been wounded in the head at fredericksburg and this was the 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 cap he was wearing and you can still see the rip in the fabric with with the where the shell had had wounded him so it is it, really an amazing place to visit and kind of out of the way you have to know where you're going if you want to go to the fifth regiment museum
1: you you really do i had the honor of speaking there a few years ago and it, it's just this hidden gem uh, and the idea that the men built this summer home for, for veterans, for them to, to fraternally share uh, as they grew older, is just a great thing. So, yeah, listeners, if you're in the Portland, Maine area, uh, look up the 5th Maine Regiment Museum. You will not be sorry to visit that. Yep, now, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Fredericksburg. Uh, one of the things your book does is talk about different engagements where uh Main regiments were heavily involved. And I found it interesting because you know, the Battle of Antietam, take an example, is a battle. Uh, everyone listening to the show has heard of the Battle of Antietam, and, and most of us know something about it. Could, you know, have heard of the certainly the Sunken Road, the Bloody Lane, the, uh, you know, the cornfield, the Eastwoods, the Westwoods, and so on. Uh, but because of your focus, you just tell the, the story of, of the Seventh Maine and their uh, suicidal charge at the
3: Piper Farm. Could you talk a, a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, it was, a, it was a, somewhat of a tragic occurrence. Um, the Seventh Maine, uh, and the account comes from Thomas Hyde, who wrote a, a, a tremendous memoir of his war experiences called Following the Greek Cross. Uh, and after the, the war, Hyde actually was like the founder of Bath Ironworks, which is still a huge, you know, concern in coastal Maine. And but, my my um, sister-in-law
1: works there, I should say. Oh, really?
3: Yes. Uh, exactly. All, they, all they, roads they, lead to Maine. It's, it's, everything connects. That, that's yeah. right. But, but um, Hyde was in temporary command of the 7th Maine at Antietam, um, and I, some sharpshooters were harassing a, a, a Union artillery position. Um, so his brigade commander ordered the 7th Maine in to to chase them out. Um, Hyde had seen Confederate reinforcements moving in. He knew it was a, a bad idea, um, but his commander William Irwin insisted. Um, Hyde ra- later realized that Irwin was probably drunk when he gave these orders. Um, so they made this this you know noble but futile charge t- towards the Piper Farm. Uh, were immediately you know, under severe fire um, and were forced back. And they said they could see some other Union troops behind them waving their hands and cheering their gallantry. But nonetheless, it was, uh, it was you know, fatal to a, to a lot of men in the regiment. And uh, in his memoirs, Hyde said he, he, he always regretted you know, you know, taking, making that charge, which was done not out of any strategy, but because of the influence of John Barleycorn.
1: Mm. Another regiment that you write about, and, and here we get a little off the beaten path of the main battles, the first main cavalry, mm-hmm. they played a, a surprisingly large role at, at Brandy Station, the,
3: the, the big cavalry battle. They did. Uh, they did and they they played a pretty small role at Gettysburg but um you can taking the, the Gettysburg campaign as a whole, they were in mm-hmm. all those those running, you know, cavalry battles um going heading north from Virginia where where Jeb Stewart was screening Lee's army and blocking the passes so the Union you know, cavalry couldn't see what Lee was up to. So they were fighting at Ald- at Brandy Station, they fought at Aldi, Middleburg, Upperville. Um but they were under Judson Kilpatrick at at Brandy Station, mm. and 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 he sent them in, and, and they made uh, you know a, a somewhat impetuous charge across Fleetwood Hill, uh, in the thick of the fighting, and this was their first really grand cavalry charge, and and their regimental historian uh, uh, Edward Toby describes how just exhilarating, and glorious and grand the experience was to go charging across Fleetwood Hill like that. Um, and it was sort of their baptism of fire. Uh, It was an interesting regiment. They were known as the Puritans because their original commanding officer um, refused to promote any officer who drank uh, Uh. and and had them take temperance pledges. Uh, But in one account, they described how the night before Brandy Station, their officers were summoned to Kilpatrick's um, camp, and no one ever called Kilpatrick a Puritan, that's for sure. No, and no. and 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 Kilpatrick had prepared a brandy punch um, for all of his officers before the, you know, the next day's battle. So they they were able to uh, um, break with their temperance pledges for at least one <laughs> night and have some brandy punch before the fight at Brandy Station. Wow, a, a good
1: uh, coincidence of names. The. Uh one of the major figures that you write about throughout the book uh, and whose papers mentioned are at, at Bowdoin College today is Oliver Howard, commander of the 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac, the, the largely German unit. They were defeated at Chancellorsville. They were outflanked by Stonewall Jackson. You touch on, on the question of blame for this, uh, how, how much do you see Howard is responsible for the predicament that his corps was in at Chancellorsville?
3: Oh, I, I think Howard has to take some a lot of blame for what happened at Chancellorsville. I mean, Joe Hooker, of course, as, as the commander of the army, has to take some, too. Now, earlier in the day, Hooker did tell Howard, watch your flank. You're not prepared for a flank attack. Um, but as the day wore on, it seems that that Hooker became convinced that Lee was retreating Instead of you know it had no idea that that Stonewall Jackson was actually on that that epic flank march to to attack his right. Um, so Hooker kind of relaxed his guard after his initial warnings. But Howard had had officers in his corps, Carl Shirts especially, who insisted that that uh, they were going to be attacked on the right. you have to you have to prepare for that eventuality. And, and Howard just did not do that. He, he, he says he did everything he, he was required to, um, but I, I think you can just look at the results and see that he did not. Um, he's an interesting figure. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say he, he's a mediocre general. Um, you don't see that kind of dash and in initiative that you expect from a from a truly successful general. Um, uh, but he was a, I think he was a, a nice man. Um, he was a very religious man. He had a religious conversion, uh, before the war when he was station in Florida. He had a growing family back in Maine. He was personally very brave. He lost his right arm at the battle of Fair Oaks and was, you know, after a very short period of recuperation was, was, was back, uh, you know, fighting with the army. Um, but I would say he was he was unprepared at Chancellorsville, and he and his men paid the price. Uh, his men, especially um, the, the Germans in the 11th Corps, became the scapegoats. You know, people called them the Flying Dutchmen. though mm-hmm. um, so many of them fought very bravely at um, at Chancellorsville, but they were overwhelmed by you know Jackson's surprise attack on their right, and their officers, you know, did not prepare them for it. So no, I think uh, at Gettysburg, um, How, Howard was looking for a redemption, mm-hmm. you know, for him and his corps. I'm not sure he he, he found it, though. He, you have to give Howard credit. He did post, you know, a, a reserve on Cemetery Hill. And when, when things went wrong for the union on July 1st at Gettysburg, they were able to fall back uh, to that position. Um, and to the end of his days, Howard said that was his idea. There were some people who said John Reynolds... Um, had ordered him to, to post men on Cemetery Hill. Um, Howard denied he ever received any such orders from Reynolds, who, of course, was killed um, that morning at Gettysburg. And so he, he really held on to this. this. This was his redemption. He By putting a division of the 11th Corps on Cemetery Hill, he did form the nucleus of that famous fishhook position that the Army of the Potomac had at Gettysburg. Um, and Congress... When Congress thanked three generals for, for Gettysburg, uh, Joe Hooker, who wasn't even there, uh, nice. George Meade, uh, who was there and was the victorious general, and Oliver Otis Howard. So um, I don't know how much politics played a role in that, but um, he did receive the, the thanks of Congress for, for his actions at Gettysburg.
1: Well, And uh, politics certainly plays a role in, in all of this, as, as does the... Malleability of, of history, because as you say, we don't know what Reynolds thought about the first day at Gettysburg since he did not survive. Uh, Howard and, and General Hancock have their famous meeting the same afternoon of July 1, 1863, and the accounts of what happened there when you know differ certainly. Mm-hmm. So so we're never quite sure. And then after the war, Howard you know leads the the Freedmen's Bureau and, and and has a very uh, different kind of role and, and a strongly uh, politically charged role, so that would also yeah, affect yeah. the way that he is remembered. Now, <laughs> this gets us to Gettysburg, which is, is the uh, the title of the book, so I, listeners are saying, hey, the book's got Gettysburg in the title, they're not even there yet. Well, we got to July 1. Uh, there are a number of main regiments heavily engaged uh, on July 1. Uh, the well, James Hall's second main battery, uh, for example, uh, uh, the fifth main battery, the others, mm-hmm. what we'll do, we're just about at time to take another break, so we'll come back. Uh, I want to ask you about the, uh, the the 16th main on the first day at Gettysburg and the uh, the famous uh, memoirist who, who wrote about it. So we'll come back and talk more with Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg, How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Tom Huntington, author of Main Roads to Gettysburg. It's a book about Maine regiments and batteries and their Civil War uh, experiences up to the, and including the Battle of Gettysburg and we've talked about some of those uh, individuals, some of those units at the different battles uh, at Gettysburg themselves uh, at Gettysburg itself main troops were heavily engaged uh, one regiment in, in particular uh, that everybody's heard of is the 20th Maine but there were others. for example the 16th Maine uh, fought heavily on, on the first day. What happened to them?
3: well, they they were uh, part of John Robinson's division of the First Corps, and um, as the the Union positions at, on the first day were being pressed on two sides, because you had had Confederates coming from the north and Confederates coming from the west, and the uh, first 16th Maine was on the far right of, of of the First Corps, and as as the Union positions were breaking, uh, Robinson. Decided he needed to buy some time, so he ordered the 16th Maine forward um, on essentially a suicide mission, just to hold back the rebels long enough for the rest of the division to escape. It, one soldier described it as like being placed at the hinge of in a pair of scissors, so the blades couldn't come back, come together and, and crush everyone. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, they were doomed. I I think they had about. 245 men when they went into combat at Gettysburg. And, you know, by the time the fighting was over, there were 35 who could report for duty. And as the rebels were closing in on them, they decided one thing they would not allow was to have their, their flags captured. So the soldiers broke up the staffs and, and tore the, the flags into shreds, and each soldier would take a piece of a, of a flag and, and hide it on his body so, so the rebels wouldn't be able to capture it. And one of the great things that I experienced doing the research for this is I I found um, the scrapbook of one of the soldiers in the 16th Maine, uh, Abner Small, who wrote Mm -hmm. uh, the the regimental history and also posthumously uh, published his memoirs, which are both just fantastic reading. But they have his scrapbooks at the Maine Historical Society, and I was thumbing through these scrapbooks uh, one day, and turned a page, and there was the, the star from the national flag that Abner Small had received at Gettysburg when they tore the flag to pieces, and wow. which he kept for the rest of his days and, and put in his scrapbook. And I thought, wow, that, that is just so cool. And that makes research
1: worthwhile when you come across something like that, and you have that direct connection to the past in the form of a physical object like that. It's just a wonderful thing.
3: It, it really is. It's just like coming face-to-face
1: with history. It, it is. There's no other way to connect than better than through going to the places where it happened or handling the the actual correspondence, or in this case, the, even the artifact belonging to one of them. Small's book, The Road to Richmond, is, is, as you say, a classic. I read it a lifetime ago, I think when I was an undergraduate. Uh, there are a couple others uh, Books that you mention in in your book uh, by individual soldiers, uh, uh, John Haley, I think, is another. Yes. Soldier author who who wrote just a remarkable memoir. Uh, talk about uh, Haley for a
3: moment, if you would. Yeah, Haley was with the Seventeenth Maine. I mean, his accounts were actually you know, they were published posthumously too, but. He actually wrote several different accounts. I think after the war, he, 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 he kind of put everything together uh, in what he called his journals. Um, one was edited and published under the title of um, The Rebel Yell and the Yankee Hurrah. And it's fascinating reading, but the, the, the Sackle Library uh, up in Maine has a couple of other versions, too, um, which are slightly different, uh, hmm. a little more sardonic than others, if you can believe it. Because he was a very sardonic uh, soldier, uh, which I think is why he, he, his voice seems modern today, because he's, mm-hmm. he can be a little cynical, a little sarcastic, um, and he's a very entertaining companion. Um, and he does, does really explain things in detail about what he experienced uh, as a member of the 17th Maine.
1: Now, the 17th Maine, they were at Gettysburg. Uh, they were in the wheat field, I believe.
3: They were indeed. Yeah, they found uh, a stone wall, which they, one of the soldiers described as a breastwork ready-made, and they made a valiant stand in the wheat field, fighting off, you know, you know, wave after wave of attacks. And one of my favorite little vignettes from from the battle is these men crouching behind their stone wall under desperate odds, and they they were able to beat back yet another attack, and there was a small lull in the battle, and they just. Spontaneously, this burst into hysterical laughter, of of relief and stress and adrenaline, and um, I, that that to me strikes me as such a human moment, you know, in all that that blood and horror in the wheat field at Gettysburg.
1: The, the wheat field is uh, near the foot of Little Round Top, and if there's one story that uh, people know about Gettysburg, it's that of Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine. Holding the left end of the, the line, uh, of the Union line at, at Little Round Top. Is the story that most of us know, the one that you get from the Killer Angels and the Gettysburg movie, is that, is that accurate?
3: Well, the Killer Angels, you have to realize, is, is a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit of heightened reality. Um, you know, it, the, the the fog of war uh, was very much a factor on, at Little Round Top, and you know, people argued did did Chamberlain actually order a bayonet charge? Even Chamberlain said he didn't really order a bayonet charge. Uh, he ordered the men to to affix their bayonets, and he said essentially they that they knew what that meant. And there's a lot of discussion about uh, how that that final charge, in which the 20th Maine was finally able to rout the 15th Alabama. How that got started um you know some say it was because the color guard had asked chamberlain for permission to move forward slightly because some of their wounded were lying in front of their lines and they wanted to provide some cover and once they started moving it was just a spontaneous reaction for the rest of the regiment who began sweeping downhill um so, what? Exa- how exactly it happened is is open to argument, but what what you can't deny is it did happen. After, mm-hmm. you know, fighting back attack after attack, ammunition running low, um, the 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 20th main charged down the hill, and and ended that that particular part of the fight. Now, William Oates, who commanded the 15th Alabama, said that he had already ordered his own regiment to retreat. Uh, before the 20th Maine came sweeping down so you know you know who knows exactly what happened but what you can't deny it was a brave fight by both the men from Maine and the men from Alabama a lot of a lot of men died that day or were badly wounded and it's a great place to visit little round top I, every time i go to gettysburg i end up there it seems
1: it it is really something i'm looking forward i have the good fortune to be leading a group that we'll be visiting there next week, and the Park Service has continued its controlled burns to try to recreate the terrain as it looked in 1863, removing the foliage that has grown up in the century and a half since then, and, and I I hear it looks really great.
3: Uh, it, you does, can really, it does.
1: So I'm I just, looking forward to it? that.
3: Yeah, just a couple weekends ago, and I went to uh, Big Round Top, which Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't visit, but there's another monument to the 20th Maine up there because late in the day, like in the evening of July 2nd, the 20th Maine received orders to climb up to the top of Big Round Top and secure that height, which uh, must have been just a nerve-wracking thing to do in the darkness, uh, where you can hear the enemy soldiers falling back in front of you, um, very little ammunition, and, and if, if you've been on Big Roundtop, you know it's kind of a scramble. They're huge mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a rugged terrain. So uh, they, had, they had two roundtops to deal with on July 2nd.
1: Now, we, we talked about uh, soldier authors like uh, Abner Small and John Haley. You mentioned uh, uh, Bicknell, who wrote the 5th Maine Regiment in History. Uh, the most famous of these writers, of course, is Chamberlain himself, who wrote a number of accounts. But you point out that. Uh, one of his subordinates, Ellis Spear, had had just about enough Chamberlain by the end of his lifetime.
3: <laughs> he did, he did. Uh, Ellis Spear, um, reading his letters and accounts, he's another one of those almost modern voices. He was kind of cynical and uh, a little sarcastic. But yeah, as he as he got older, he he got a little tired. Not so uh, not so much of Ch- what Chamberlain said and did. He said. <laughs> But the way he would accept the deference of others who might have things incorrect, uh, and, and Chamberlain would not correct them or or, or give credit to someone else. Um, Speer really thought strong Vincent, who commanded their brigade and was mortally wounded on Little Round Top, was the true hero of Little Round Top. But he did get a little a little angry with Chamberlain especially after cosmopolitan published uh, an account that Chamberlain wrote about Fredericksburg mm-hmm. and, and speared complained to, to Ames who was still alive they were both old men and he complained to Ames that perhaps he intended this to be a work of fiction because you know I don't I don't remember a lot of any of this stuff uh, um, and you mentioned Ames uh, what about his post-war career uh, Now, that was an amazing career. He lived, you know, way way into his 90s. Um, He was a Reconstruction-era governor of Mississippi um, who was threatened with impeachment when the the Democrats regained control uh, after Reconstruction. He was threatened with impeachment and and, and, and ended up resigning instead. Um, In his 90s, he was still playing 36 holes of golf a day and his golfing mm. partner was John D. Rockefeller, of Standard Oil fame. Wow. Um, he he was uh, he was a very interesting individual.
1: So so, and and Chamberlain, of course, also becomes governor.
3: Yes, yes, he does. And, so you, you, and you, President of Bowdoin College too. And so, another soldier I write about a lot is Selden <laughs> Connor, who was with the Seventh yes. Maine. And he became governor too after the war and. I, I realized found his gravestone in in a cemetery in Augusta, Maine that I knew quite well, and I just never realized that uh, you know he was there. It was kind of like coming across an old friend
1: well it it's just a fascinating uh, set of stories you have here the the book ends with the Battle of Gettysburg and then you do talk about the post-war careers of some of these people. Uh, Thinking ahead uh, the there was the first it was not the first main heavy artillery regiment that uh, yes they they go in uh, having not fought yet and they're a giant regiment of 800 or 900 men. Um, well, we won't tell that story it's not in your book but uh, do you have a, a sequel in mind or what
3: what project uh, are you working on now? Well, I would very much like to write a sequel, so I have to you know, convince my publisher to do that. Um, and one reason I'm, I really want to do a sequel is because I just recently discovered that my great-grandfather was with the 31st Maine. And so hmm. he, he was um, probably at Petersburg. He might have he participated in the Battle of the Crater. So wow. I would love to follow my great-grandfather's footsteps through the Overland Campaign and beyond.
1: And it would give you another reason to go to Maine for research trips.
3: Can't, can't <laughs> argue with that. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So with our, our last minute, let me ask the, uh, the Civil War time machine question. Uh, of all these Maine soldiers or of anyone from the Civil War era, if you could go back for 30 minutes and talk to a figure from this time uh, and then report back to us in safety, who would you want to meet and what would you talk about?
3: Well, I almost have to say Joshua Chamberlain. Um, Mm -hmm. Since since we both belong to the same fraternity at Bowdoin College, he's my fraternity brother. So (laughs) I I would have to go and and say hello to him and ask him what really happened a Little Round Top. How did that charge get started? So polar bears are sticking together, the,
1: uh, (laughs) the, the Bowdoin mascot and uh, uh, I know my daughter would probably endorse that as well so overall I'd, I'd say this was a very interesting book I, I hope it's not just because it's about the home team because I uh, have a lot of Maine connections and interest and, and a lot of these names that I, I was reading page after page were familiar people uh, you know Thomas Hyde has a school named after him in, in Bath, Maine as well as of course BIW mm-hmm. and uh, and my, my sister-in-law's house is right next to the grounds of the Hyde School.
3: Uh, yeah. So so everywhere, these are all familiar people. Yeah, yeah. My mother first started teaching at Nash School in Augusta, which was named after George E. Nash, who was served mm-hmm. with the 19th Maine and who I quote quite often in the book. So it's it, it's a small world up there in Maine. It, it, it really is
1: and and the men from Maine made a notable sacrifice and notable contribution to uh, the victory of the United States in the Civil War so uh, it, it's a book Book worth reading. Listeners, uh, even if you're not from Maine or don't go there often, this will give you an excuse to go there. Uh, it's called Maine Roads to Gettysburg How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 Men from the Pine Tree State Helped Win the Civil War's Bloodiest Battle. The author is Tom Huntington. Tom, thanks so much for being on the show.
3: Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.